Hello, I'm, I'm Mary Caldor, co-director of um, LSE Global Governance, uh, and I'm really delighted this evening to welcome uh, Lord Malak Brown. Uh, actually, we were just remembering that the first time he came to the LSE, which was the first time I met him, he was the administrator of UNDP at the time, and I was chairing it, and I thought this is going to be a typical UN speech, and I said to him afterwards with great surprise, gosh, that was really interesting. <laughs> and um, so, as many of you may know, that after he was administrator of UNDP, he then played a very big role in reform of the United Nations under Kofi Annan, and then he became a minister uh, in the Foreign Office in Gordon Brown's government. Uh, now he's working for a global company, and I'm delighted that he's going to talk about the unfinished global <coughs> revolution. Well, Mary, thank you. And when, when I talk about this, this book, one of the things I always say, particularly if it's um, to an audience with, with uh, young men and women in it, is this is partly the book about how a nice middle-class boy uh, ended up devoting his career to global issues and, and, and uh, the fight against global poverty. But with Mary here, I have a particular way of making this point in that I did grow up in a very middle-class uh, home uh, here in the UK and the measure of it was that whenever my father came home from work in the 60s he always had some horror story to tell about what that damn Professor Caldor had advised Harold Wilson to do this week uh, because Mary's father was a very famous economic advisor to the Labour governments of those days and actually when I became a minister I was anxious to get Mary to advise me because I thought it would make my father turn in his grave the idea of two generations of these damn socialists uh, <laughs> advising British government so Mary as always it's a huge huge pleasure to, 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 to talk in front of you. Um, and and let, let me just say that um, an awful lot of this book got written in my head when I was uh, running UNDP, um, because UNDP is, in a sense, the great sort of bird's nest from which to watch uh, how countries develop and what are the factors of success and what are the factors of, of, of failure and for me it confirmed something I had learned as a young man in Britain which was uh, to watch uh, during the 50s the decade in which I was born but then the 60s when I kind of understood what was going on around me in the 70s to watch Britain's apparent uh, economic decline despite all that good advice it was getting uh, and uh, to then suddenly see a figure who I felt very little direct political sympathy for, Margaret Thatcher, come to office. And as a young journalist, I covered her rise. And uh, to see with some astonishment and a lot of initial skepticism how this extremely forceful individual could grab a country by the scruff of its neck and drive a reform program that, love it or hate it, transformed uh, the economic prospects of, of Britain at that time. And it left me, um, 
you know, with, with a sense that this strong leadership, uh, preferably of a more left of centre bent than, than Mrs. Thatcher provided, uh, backed by the right kind of global public investors, organisations like UNDP, could create dramatic change and you know UNDP's own history had been very much characterized by in its early days as a kind of consulting advisory technical assistance agency watching you know Margaret Thatcher uh, in a sense equivalents like Lee Kuan Yew in in, in Singapore uh, dramatically transform the prospects of at the time a country which seemed to have very little comparative advantage or or, or assets in its favor so you know I, I arrived from this sort of British background if you like uh, with uh, by the time I got to UNDP a real respect for the role of political leadership in, in how countries could change and found in UNDP an organization which was deeply devoted to the idea that if we could just get the ear of the Prime Minister or the President and uh, have them convince people about the value of a long-term sustained program of change that within a generation uh, a country could completely change uh, its economic proposition and place in the league tables if, if, if you like and you know I, I think it's sort of often overlooked what it means for someone like myself that in 1965 uh, uh, Ghana was richer than South Korea uh, and that you know the, the, the way in which the pecking order of states has changed in the succeeding 40 years is, is, is extraordinary and as I say reflects both the dramatic nature of economic change over the last half century but the compelling role of good politics and good economic policies in uh, achieving that and I say that without any comment on the nature of these regimes because the three governments I've mentioned so far in, in approving terms are all actually, uh, two of them were, 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 were uh, semi-authoritarian and the third, Margaret Thatcher, would have been if only she could have gotten rid of that wretched thing, Parliament. So it's not that I'm approving uh, the, the, the nature of them but making a comment on just how quickly uh, countries could rise or fall. And in fact this book is very much about this issue of the rise and fall of countries and regions and the difficulties of predicting it. Uh, I, after all, you know, 20 years ago, uh, in the, living in the United States, was subjected to the interminable uh, books and articles and media obsession with the rise of Japan, which was going to, at that time, knock the U.S. off uh, the top of the economic league table. And so, you know, one approaches with a certain sort of pinch of salt at uh, the same obsession today with China's equally rapid and inevitable rise and you know it's left me with a sort of pragmatic cautionary sense that uh, almost every prediction of this kind is going to be subject to refinement and change and in some cases deep embarrassment as it proves completely 180 degrees wrong but that the one thing one can say about this world is that change itself will be constant and that therefore to construct systems of international government which manage change and do not allow that change uh, to descend into conflict is in a sense the critical challenge uh, of, of our age because 
you know, whereas many others see this you know, inevitable, exciting rise of Asia, uh, I share that, but with a lot more cautionary notes, a view that in many ways, when you look at the number of border disputes in Asia, uh, whether it is the issues of Taiwan or the South China Sea, uh, whether it is Kashmir or the Korean Peninsula, or look internally at the uh, huge and rising income inequalities in so many countries in the region, where everybody else sees economic success, I see the potential for, for conflict. Uh, and where others see the gro no potential impeding limits on the growth, I see increasing water constraints, energy constraints, and a general sort of low resource ceiling uh, hanging over uh, the region's growth and success. So for me, the issue is not the predictive one of exactly what will or won't happen in terms of the rise of Asian economies. It's how can Asia be drawn into a system of global uh, issue and, tr and, and conflict management that means that we won't have a 20th century equivalent of what happened in Europe, uh, which began the 20th century with a similar list of unsolved border problems and internal inequalities and uh, constraints of energy and, and, and other resources at that time. It's precisely the hope of avoiding the violent conflicts that drew in the whole world uh, to Europe's disputes in the 20th century, which makes me such a convinced partisan of the need of strong global institutions for this century. Now, the book, you know, in a sense, uh, is, argues really only two central propositions uh, in that regard. One is that while global institutions are going to be in critically important, uh, their authority will come from strong national institutions. This is not one of those UN books about the rise of world federalism or of a global parliament or government. Uh, it has a very, very pragmatic view of the UN having been a post-1945 creation with the very purpose of creating a sound, burden-shared conflict resolution mechanisms and development mechanisms to make sure that America wasn't landed with the burden of picking up the post-1945 uh, world. And now, similarly, I look at countries needing to show a similar act of statesmanship to that of Roosevelt and Truman and to basically pass up a bit of power to share sovereignty at the global level around problems from regulating the global financial system as well as issues such as security and public health uh, to make sure we just have a framework of effective uh, global institutions. And if we do, it will actually enhance and strengthen the legitimacy of national government, not undermine it. Uh, in 2008, I was Gordon Brown's envoy for the uh, G20 uh, summit that occurred in, in April of the following year, and indeed was played this role in 2008 and 9. And you know, it was clear to me that given a mega financial uh, meltdown and the prospect of the, the, the financial world falling over the cliff with you know, trade pretty much, uh, almost, it seemed for a, a little while almost at a standstill and certainly a trade, international trade fell about 25% during that, those critical weeks and months, uh, that at that time uh, political leaders suddenly briefly got it 
coming to the G20 in London. Uh, it was all about how can we find common agreement to regulate our financial sectors, how can we create a global uh, level playing field in this regard, uh, how indeed can we share a little bit of sovereignty uh, to fix the international financial system. As soon as the crisis receded, so did that political will, so it fell back. It was a learnt and unlearnt lesson, if you like, for national politicians. But the other thing that someone who's run a development agency for years has to conclude is it's not just that we're going to need stronger global institutions and national institutions that work, but there's clearly another trend towards local institutions. And I talk that about that in the book too, of how in a sense one of the political come cultural reactions to globalization is to grab on much more strongly to the community, uh, whether it is a town or a, uh, a, a subset of a country. Uh, this, this decentralization of power expressed here uh, by the new government, but much more, a much more universal phenomenon across Latin America, Africa, and many other parts of the world, you know, is a very strong political force as well. So, you know, what, what I describe in this book is of power seeping away from the traditional intergovernmental nation-state mechanism of problem-solving towards this global, national, and local level, but with a fourth leg to the chair, if you like, which is the extraordinary rising power of civil society and a big vision of civil society that includes uh, business as well and the striking, striking way that, you know, problem after problem which can't be knocked down and solved by states uh, is being turned over to informal coalitions of civil society leadership including business uh, and, and uh, very often um, you know, one or two like-minded states that, that join in. And you know, we first saw this going back to landmines where uh, anti-war activists joined with veteran groups and joined with Canada uh, to, uh, to, to draw up the landmine uh, treaty ban, which, which um, uh, you know, since has gained uh, global force by once drafted being taken back much more formally into the channels of the United Nations. But as we speak, uh, just as the climate change talks between in the traditional government format of 192 governments around the table in Copenhagen and then Cancun shows very little life to it uh, in, on in all honesty, uh, we're seeing an extraordinary coalition of individuals, including the likes of Prince Charles, George Soros, uh, one or two out of work, uh, an, an ex-American president, uh, uh, a group of climate change uh, foundations, McKinsey, uh, one or two large global banks, all combining uh, to try and put a plan in place to save the Indonesian forests. Now you might think that's hardly a major contribution to climate change and yet actually the Indonesian rainforests are you know, the fifth biggest source of climate emitting gases, I, I think I'm correct in saying, or within the top five rather. And, and they're there because you know, unlike other rainforests which the loss of tree cover just means that you lose the sink effect of sucking out the gases, uh, but this particular soil exposed bakes in a way that emits gases. So this very ad hoc coalition 
uh, of people led actually but initially by the government of Norway playing the role of Canada in this case has pulled together these individual climate activists uh, Nick Stern of this very school is part of it as well uh, has pulled them together and pulled the financing together from a mixture of public and private sources and pulled in others now such as DFID and, and, and the US uh, aid resources through the Millennium Challenge Corporation but it's not within the formal intergovernmental process. This is a new kind of minilateralism or coalition of the willing which is being assembled to deal with these kinds of, uh, these, these, these kinds of global problems. So it's a fascinating world out there. And you know, I argue that you know, while we will see these coalitions arise, they must be within this framework of strengthened institutions because as conflicts erupt, and, and as countries rise and fall in this sort of economic global league table of, and, and broader league table of power, we must have the mechanisms in place to manage uh, these shifts in a uh, amicable, uh, competitive, but nevertheless collaborative as against conflict-based way. And I argue that these, 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 these moments of conflict and confrontation will occur, not least because I also have come out of a lifetime watching this, believing that in a sense we live within an iron triangle, a triangle of uh, the integration of all our economies through the process of globalization, uh, a requirement for very high rates of growth across the whole global economy to throw off sufficient wealth to, uh, to meet the needs of a growing population and of growing middle class aspirations across the world. And yet at the same time, the third side to the triangle is limits. Uh, limits in energy resources, limits in water, uh, limits in food supply, limits. Uh, and that how we manage the trade-off between these, these different demands is going to be the sort of great challenge to global public policy making over the whole of the next generation and therefore developing the mechanisms to handle it is going to be absolutely critical and indispensable. Now, if this all sounds a rather dry book and the kind of book that you, know, you, you, you hear too much of at the LSE, uh, let me quickly reassure you that as much as anything else, it is uh, the book of a boy who listened to his dad complain about Professor Caldor and uh, who then went on from there to follow his, route, his own roots, my father's roots, back to, to Africa where he had come from, to South Africa, uh, and uh, went on to, to university here in Britain never able to shake that Africa bug. It's the story of you know, the lectures that changed the direction of, of, of my career. But then as I tell this story of how the wave of democracy spread across the world and on its tails economic liberalization and beyond that the unexpected consequence of this force we call globalization, it's a story I try to illuminate from the front row seat I was lucky to occupy during, uh, during much of this, an adventurous life at the beginning when, you know, as a young uh, refugee officer, not that long out of covering Margaret Thatcher as a, as, as a journalist, I, I suddenly find myself exposed to the Khmer Rouge in, 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 in Thailand, which actually reminded me how sweet Margaret Thatcher actually was. Uh, and, um, you know, 
finding, uh, discovering them first as a young field officer being sent uh, to negotiate with them whether we could evacuate the wounded and uh, suddenly after having met their leadership seeing the astonishing sight of uh, a field which I had thought was an empty paddy field suddenly filled with the, the oxen and uh, and and Khmer Rouge men, women and children dressed in the all too familiar black pyjamas suddenly standing up once their leader had given the okay and realizing what an astonishingly disciplined uh, movement this was and uh, you know then being drawn deeply into that conflict between Cambodia and Vietnam and being involved in the massive refugee outflows and listening to refugees talk at night about uh, how their country had you know, turned from its kind of rather bucolic uh, but American-supported uh, middle-class uh, king-based authoritarian regime to a Maoist Khmer Rouge one without stopping in the middle for, to try and find some kind of democratic uh, alternative to this. And going from that experience and similar experiences as a refugee officer in Central America and the Horn of Africa, off to become a promoter of democracy around the world, to work for a consulting business that actually advised uh, political leaders as they came to power and working for uh, an extraordinary range of such leaders, Cory Aquino as she challenged Marcos in the Philippines, the No campaign against Pinochet in Chile, uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, who I'm sure has stood at this lecture uh, think, hall at some point or other in his life as he ran for president of Peru. And, you know, I notched up a kind of Guinness book of records thing of having worked on more campaigns in more countries than anybody else at that time had done because it was such a new business to go out and advise emerging democratic movements and leaders on how they might come to power and it you know, confirmed to me the importance of democratic choice in, in how countries move forward. But I also ran up against the limits that people might have the vote, they might elect good presidents, but unless the international economic system responded to them and the loans came forth from the World Bank and the IMF adopted a kind of um, a, a sympathetic expansionary approach to uh, the kind of fiscal situation that so many of these new Democrats inherited, it would all come to naught. And so my journey took me to to the World Bank and uh, to, uh, from there, an involvement in the big financial crises, first in Latin America and then Asia, that shook the world at the end of the 90s. And I you know, saw these institutions crack down uh, on the, the, the on, on, on the economies of these uh, these the, these countries in a way which I'm glad to say did not happen in 2008 and nine here, and as I went through all this, it, it made me understand the links both between development and democracy, but also the links between national democracy and responsive, supportive global institutions that could help underwrite. Uh, that democratic success, both at the economic level, but also in the kind of political conflict, uh, human rights fields as well. And so perhaps all of this was a good training to go to UNDP as its administrator for six years. And by now, the stories in the book get less exciting. Uh, people didn't tend to take pot shots at me, by the, or at least not literal physical bullet 
pot shots at me once I'd gotten to being head of UNDP. But in a sense, the same themes played out of the struggle uh, we had to kind of build more accountable, effective international institutions. Uh, the hopes of the Clinton years in the US, such an important member of the United Nations, quickly got overtaken by the absolute difficulties that we confronted during President Bush's years, you know, culminating in the Iraq war and the, near, the, the fundamental estrangement between the UN and most of its member states and the US and the UK in, at that time. And while the UK was in a sense quick to forgive and uh, Tony Blair was furious though he must have been at the stand we took on the war, the lack of support, the lack of a second resolution. He never wavered in his strength, in his support for the United Nations, whereas by contrast, you know, a, a terrible war of kind of institutional attrition began out of Washington, an attempt to target Kofi Annan, the hugely successful UN Secretary General at the time. A, a right-wing uh, sort of movement started in the press where five congressional committees investigating the, the oil for food scandal where the UN had gotten itself into terrible difficulties trying to approve the finance of Iraq's imports and exports before the war and one or two UN officials had been properly found out to be corrupt and some are in jail to this day. But it was blown into a huge scandal by an American right determined to drive Kofi Annan from, uh, from office. And we lived through you know, very difficult years, years equivalent to uh, the first years of the Cold War, where then, too, America, despite having founded the UN, had become its biggest critic. Uh, and you know had begun a kind of effort to invest a McCarthyite investigation as to whether different UN civil servants in fact had been previously communists or not. So this issue of trying to protect the integrity and independence of the United Nations against its strongest, most important member state, uh, the United States, was very much with me during um, my, my last years at the UN working at Kofi Annan's side as his deputy once I'd uh, moved over from, from running uh, UNDP. So I saw the UN in good years and bad years and I saw it come under pressure both from its strongest member state uh, but also saw it challenged by the huge uh, problems thrown at it uh, and at one point thought of calling my book uh, the Situation Center because there was a little room in the middle of the UN which was attached to our peacekeeping department and which had three or four television screens on it, one always running CNN, uh, one um, uh, running the BBC and a third Al Jazeera and into it came the cables from our peacekeeping operations around the world and our critical political operations and 24 hours a day the problems would pour in of Darfur, of uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone, of human rights abuses, of the failure of governments to respect doctrines such as the responsibility to protect, of growing environmental disasters in different parts of the world. And, you know, I would be woken at all times of the night to be told of the latest crisis and you know we would under Kofi Annan in a very proactive way deploy what resources we could to, to try and address these problems but there was a real sense of a UN no longer right sized 
for the scale of problems that a globalized world uh, was, was throwing at it. And you know, if you take out our peacekeepers, who after all are all seconded troops, not serving uh, as only borrowed by the UN, but if you look at the UN civil service, in, at, at its most, you know, including all of its consultants and everything else, you're dealing with a total global uh, staff complement smaller than the city government of Vienna uh, and smaller than the New York Fire Department. Uh, and in that sense, the expectations and demands placed on this organization have become completely detached from the level of resources and support uh, that it receives. And you know, so to finally, what will happen to the UN as someone who, as I say, has, you know, devoted a huge part of my uh, waking and sleeping life to it over, uh, over, over the last few decades? Well, you know, I think it's very much up in the air. It's, on the one hand, the indispensable legitimizer of action at the international level. Uh, something like the G20 uh, lacks any treaty-based form. Uh, so many of its agreements have to go to the United Nations or alternatively to the World Bank and IMF for endorsement and action. Uh, when there is an agreement to save an Indonesian rainforest or to ban landmines, that too needs to come back uh, to the United Nations so that all the nations of the world can collectively endorse it and sign up to that initiative. And so that kind of passive uh, recipient and endorser and rubber stamper of international action at a very minimum in a globalized world will remain the UN's role. But obviously for someone like myself, a complete partisan activist, the aspiration is for something much, much more. A UN re remains still uh, uh, principally driven by its nation states, but where it is able to persuade those nation states to trust and place in it uh, a much more pooled sovereignty uh, to address common problems than has been the case till now as one watches this painfully slow process to construct an adequate response to the events in Libya, one realizes just how far we are from the kind of global <coughs> security executive that the, that the Security Council should be uh, to act fairly and firmly within clear international rules and laws to deal uh, with the outbreak of a rogue state behavior such as uh, that in, in Libya at the moment. And, and we just don't have the system, let alone a system properly resourced uh, to deal with, with circumstances like Libya. Uh, and beyond that, still though, a feeling that the UN is never going to just be more of the same, nor is it going to just be more of an intergovernmental uh, forum that somehow it's got to find a way of including uh, the most dynamic part of the, the emerging global system, which is civil society, as I said earlier. Unless those other partners in minilateralism, in solving landmines or addressing landmines or rainforests and climate change, unless those other partners, the foundations, the NGOs, business, can be brought to the table, we won't see success. And in some of the newer bits of the international machinery, we're starting to see an, a, a formal effort to include those constituencies. If you look uh, at, at the uh, Global Fund to Combat HIV, AIDS, uh, Malaria, and TB, um, 
you, you will see that on its board there are business representatives and uh, that civil society more broadly, the NGOs are also on its board, that is no longer just strictly and limited to government representation. And in terms of its operating modalities at the country level, similarly it works through civil society organisations, not just governments. So a new generation of sort of international engineering architecture, if you like, is starting to be much more flexible and reflective of this changed world, which is no longer just simply and one-dimensionally a world of states. Uh, we're starting to see a much more complex if you like, structure uh, coming into place. And that's, of course, the world that, or, or the kind of system that people such as myself and Kofi Annan have you know, worked so hard to try and create. Are we there? Not by a long chalk, and hence the uh, name of the book, The Unfinished Global Revolution. What would it take to get us there? Uh, the book, I think, in the eyes of some reviewers, as they wished I'd have been a bit more forthcoming in declaring you know, more explicitly what the blueprint for achieving it is. Instead, I escape with a slight sleight of hand and say, we'll know it when we get there. Uh, because I think it is going to be in some ways such a sort of uh, collection of, of, of spontaneous separate initiatives by different groupings around different issues uh, that when it gets knitted together as a new international system, uh, it'll come into place in a sense despite uh, governments, not because of them and not because of some uh, carefully laid blueprint. I very much doubt we will see a San Francisco conference of the kind that drew up the UN um, all those years ago in the mid-40s. Uh, so instead, uh, but I think what, in, in conclusion what one can say and what I hope for is that some of the early steps we've made to start giving globalization more of a social face, uh, more of a, uh, if you like, a, 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 a stake for all in it, uh, may well provide the basis for the actions that drive this. And I have in mind the Millennium Development Goals and the role they've played in starting to address poverty, uh, education, healthcare, environmental deterioration in a way that people everywhere have been able to, to mobilize around, if you like, the beginnings of a global social contract which accept that a juster globalization cannot be an unmanaged market force which just drives wealth upwards towards the rich, but which must give a stake in it uh, to the poor. And so, you know, I think around this phenomenon of globalization, we will start to see a new politics emerge uh, where people recognize that the solutions are no, no longer at the national level, but need to be fought for globally as well. And out of that, I hope we'll start to see uh, a little bit more of the finishing touches to such a revolution. But it's a huge unfinished canvas out there, which is where my book concludes that, in a sense, it's a book about passing on a baton to uh, many such as you in the room, uh, plea to you all, whether you go into business or into not-for-profit work or into international organizations, to, to live that global life, to live those global values, to recognize that this is a generation, as mine was, of huge, dramatic change of dramatic increases in population on the one hand, but world-breaking increases in global prosperity, in global life expectancy, uh, in global health 
uh, and in global education of a kind that the world has never seen at any other earlier moment in human history and that we have to seize those things and, and out of them build a fairer, juster, more inclusive global society and that uh, to have a blueprint to do that is a dangerous thing in this particular world as you know, governments fight to in a sense keep politics national. But if there is you know, an, over, uh, an overarching insight that I, I come away from the, the years that I've observed this and that have gone into this book, it is that the phenomenon of globalization has created a much more integrated world than ever before, a process of integration which it seems highly unlikely will ever be reversed. And yet at the political level it, may, it remains the most ungoverned world in many centuries. Uh, there is no effective global system of governance. The UN has not been given the power to do that. It is in its perverse way a much weaker system of global management than colonialism provided and, the, and empires provided before that. Uh, it does not fill uh, a vacuum, uh, let alone offer poorer, weaker countries the chance to have their interests effectively represented at the global level in a way which drives a better stake for them uh, in global economy and society. So it's a huge unmet challenge and it's one that people tend to walk away from because it just seems too distant. It seems to be that global black box you just can't get your hands around. But my argument is that in today's world there is no successful national politics without a successful global politics as well. So we must engage. Thank you. Well, I can't agree with you more strongly. <laughs> um, and I think what I'll do is to immediately ask people who would like to ask a question. Um, so I've got three people, and I'll take you in threes. I'll start with the lady there. And it'd be nice if you give your name and say who you are, because it's nice to know. Thank you very much for your um, ins inspiring talk. I want to m ask you something about what has been going on in Northern Africa right now. Um, well, it's part of the question. We know that um, the Security Council is in session right now to do something, to decide something about Libya. We know that the UN has not been so successful in getting things done in the past, and um, hopefully something will be done about Libya. But what about Bahrain, for example? I mean, why does the fact that the Western countries are so interested in Libya makes it a center of attention for the United Nations where every country should have certain rights or you know, equal amount of rights? So where is Bahrain in this game? Thanks. Now I'm going to take you down here. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Teddy Nicholson, a student here. Um, I, uh, I was very interested uh, in your talk, and I'm halfway through reading your book and drawing it a great deal. Uh, I think one of the more dramatic disjunctures we see in the world right now is between, as you described them, the UN partisans, of whom I'm sure there are a lot in this room, and those who don't know the UN and probably see it as more irrelevant or they ignore it. And I feel a lot of that is because of the 
because of the failures of the UN, not so much in achieving its uh, expectations, but in simple PR. And as someone who's worked on, uh, on electoral campaigns a lot, as someone who understands PR, what do you think can be done, about, done for the United Nations just to improve its image? It shoots itself in the foot so often in those terms. How can we persuade democratic electorates that this is an organization that is worth backing? rather than just reconciling it to, oh, it's never going to work. Okay, and then the gentleman down here. Lord Malbrand, thank you very much. My name is David Braham. Um, you have an interesting background in telling us about, not only did you your work for UNDP, but also the UN. There's an interesting um, debate going on about aid versus trade and how aid is harming Africa more than it's helping because they're caught in the poverty trap a bit like the benefit system over here. Um, what do you feel about that? Do you feel that we haven't really solved the free trade issue enough and it should be put more front and centre? And, and how we're harming Africa and how can we help more? Okay, I'm going to let Mark answer these questions Great. and then I'll come to the next round of Great. questions. Great, all very good questions. On, on the North Africa point, you know, I mean, it is hugely frustrating because the Security Council is permanently one step behind the need. I mean, now, you know, now they're debating a no-fly zone when actually it's too late to provide a good solution to stopping what is happening. Uh, and um, they're also, to be honest, debating it under the wrong doct doctrine, because as someone who was hugely involved in promoting the doctrine of responsibility to protect, it's actually not the correct doctrine for the situation being faced, because you know, while um, you know, what Colonel Gaddafi do is doing is horrific, he is not actually meeting, as far as I can see, the conditions to allow action against him under that doctrine, because that doctrine was very clearly defined as you know, indiscriminate civilian casualties at the hand of a government that is deliberately targeting civilians. He, we may not like what he's doing, but he is quite carefully avoiding so far massive civilian casualties. Uh, it would fall within what under international law would be considered a reasonable effort by a government to restore control of its territory. You know, it doesn't make it right, but just you have to be so careful with these doctrines because the only way you prevent double standards uh, is making sure that they applied by the letter of whatever. I mean, that's because I'm going to come to the Bahrain point in a second. On the other hand, uh, you know, what Gaddafi is doing by reconsolidating his authority is undoubtedly creating a threat to international peace and security. Uh, the most the the original uh, the original cause for Security Council action going back to the beginning of the Charter's life, and why is he doing that? Because you know this is a man with a proven track record of going after his uh, opponents, countries, and individuals by financing terrorism, uh, and you know financing uh, different countries' opponents. You know he. 
under very controversial circumstances, briefly stopped doing that uh, a few years ago in, as a result of the effort to bring him back into the community of nations. It is a reasonable judgment to make that he ain't coming back in any time soon and that he has a few scores to settle, not just with Britain and the United States, but equally with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, uh, with all of the Arab League countries that suspended his membership. So, you know, what we have once more is a potentially rogue terrorist president. Um, and that is as classic a threat to international peace and security as you could have. And in my view, you know, allows for extremely strong action. And, you know, I'm, I imagine this won't be very popular for some in this room. But to my mind, it justifies arming the rebels. Uh, it justifies not a foreign intervention. I think that would be wrong, and as much as people are calling for it now, I, I think it's getting going down the wrong track. But I think, you know, that that we almost certainly are now going to face a period when Benghazi will be under siege. But unless its morale breaks, which is not to be ruled out, um, because it's a city of half a million people at the end of a very long logistics supply line from Tripoli, a logistics supply line which did for some very first-class generals in the Second World War ask Rommel or Montgomery about those supply lines. Um, you know, there is every reason to suspect he is not going to be able to take Benghazi very quickly, or even if he did, that there would be massive, you know, internal action against him by the now armed citizens of that city. So it's quite likely to me that we will face a Sarajevo-like situation of a city under siege. And during that, the international community has to kind of, in a sense, take action. And from my point of view, you know, I would be open to everything from arming the rebels to recognizing the rebel government as legitimate uh, transition government of the country to a whole range of other steps much more robust than, you know, in a sense, we typically see the UN's take. But they've got to be within a clear political narrative of why we're doing it and you know not to attempt an attempt to, to to bend concepts which are not appropriate to this particular situation so then you come to bahrain where i am as alarmed as you are and you know appalled by the potential for double standards there but again you do have to look at the international law situation which is that you know the Bahraini government has made an appeal through a treaty, which it is, you know, a perfectly legitimate treaty, the Gulf Cooperation Council, to its fellow members of that treaty who are collectively committed to each other's mutual security uh, for aid, military assistance. Uh, and I think you will find that, you know, that is absolutely within the appropriate use of that treaty and is not therefore a kind of breach of international law. You know, what of course is utterly unacceptable and in fairness to both the US and the UK government, I mean President Obama and, and indeed the UK as well, have you know condemned excessive use of force and called for a democratic dialogue as the way forward. And we have to just be very, very consistent about that, but not 
you know, my only point is just don't conflate Libya and Bahrain and just say it's because, you know, Gaddafi is a kind of hate figure to the West and all the TV cameras are there, so we race after that and we ignore Bahrain. For me, the double standard is, frankly, much more with Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, you know, more people have lost their lives in Cote d'Ivoire over the last few months than have lost their lives so far in Libya. Uh, and you don't see any calls for international intervention there, even though there the situation is much more clear-cut and unambiguous. An elected, recognized president is prevented from taking office by his predecessor, who is killing the supporters, the, in, you know, the unarmed civilian supporters of that elected president. Now, you know, I, I think there's some good news. I think that one is starting to move. But, you know, so I don't, so my, in sum, I don't deny double standards. There are many too many of them out there. But the way out of it is, from my point, from my point of view, is for the Security Council and, indeed, this, the West, uh, but all other members of the Security Council as well, to commit to the idea that it is a kind of democratic way forward, to, you know, that, that that's the way to try and move each of these different uh, Arab region countries in terms of the negotiation process or change process or the Security Council action. But to do it within clear norms and principles of international law so that we don't get ourselves into a complete muddle of inconsistent action uh, between uh, different, dif different countries. Teddy, um, uh, another young political consultant in the making. Um, I don't know how many of your fellow students know your role as an Obama organizer. You probably keep it quiet nowadays. Um, but um, let, 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 let me just say that, you know, obviously as someone who does know a bit about communications, on the one hand, you know, I, I quickly discovered that the UN lacks the one thing you need for effective communications, which is the ability to command and set the story itself. Uh, the UN is everybody's favorite default mechanism. It is quite astonishing to be in a leadership role and see country after country dump on you uh, for their own failings. Um, and, you know, in a sense, you know, the, the, the UN is the international dustbin of political failure. Uh, whatever goes on that you can't play, you know, you, you, you need a fall guy for, there's the UN. So controlling and managing the message was, was, it was very, very difficult, but there was one period when, even though I was by this point Deputy Secretary General, I decided I was going to become the day-to-day -day public relations officer of the organization as well, which was during the oil for food scandal where, you know, we had five, five congressional committees investigating Kofi Annan, his, his son, our contracts in Iraq, and, you know, it was, in terms of its intensity, quite close to what President Clinton had been subjected to uh, during the impeachment hearings. And, you know, different UN senators would, would come up to um, uh, the UN and demand that Kofi Annan step down. And um, there was a constant daily patter of revelation and inaccurate news about what was going on. And so I actually recruited back uh, a lot of people who'd worked for me on elections around the world, and we took the fight to Washington. And it was quite extraordinary to see what happened because, you know, senators, in my view, actually, most of them, you know, have quite weak jaws and they're quite 
unused to getting punched back and quite and, and the place they least expected it from was from those nice bureaucrats at the UN. And, and so, you know, it, it was very clear to me that if the UN had the courage to be a lot more aggressive about its messaging and sticking up for its side of the argument, uh, we could, as we did on that occasion, bat back these congressional committees and, and kind of win the argument and, and, and win the day. Uh, but it takes quite a Secretary General to allow that. And Kofi Annan, as I said, was, I think, you know, other than Doug Hammarskjöld, the great Secretary General of the UN's early days, is the only really extraordinary figure who has yet to lead the organization. And even he, as I say in the book, was a quite cautious man. And uh, so it was only when his back was against the wall and uh, it really looked as though not just he, but the UN system might be irrevocably damaged uh, by the actions of groups in the US Congress that in a sense his attack dog deputy got unleashed and was able to apply the, the, the skills and disciplines and black arts of American political consulting against uh, American politicians. And it was a treat to do and a joy to behold, <laughs> uh, but probably not uh, an, an allowable normal behavior for, 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 for the UN. And hence, David, to, to the question about aid versus trade. You know, if you look at the, the African development success stories, which at the moment in terms of growth rates are you know, countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda, Tanzania, Malawi, Ghana, um, you know, all of these countries, and Mozambique, there are, there are about 17 or 18 countries, if you leave out South Africa and Nigeria, which have, you know, very special cases because of their size and intrinsic wealth. But if you take 17 or 18 of the sort of better, smaller, well-managed countries, you know, in pretty much all of them, there has been a period of very high aid dependence. But the, the good ones, the successful ones, have started to work down that aid dependence as they develop their private sector and as their own trade grows, which in turn leads to jobs and incomes growing, which in turn leads to them getting their own kind of revenue base, which allows them to finance their own services. And so, you know, I, I, I think that, that it's a false choice. You know, well-used aid provides the physical human capital and the early financial capital formation for a country to transition into a private growth model of development. And, you know, there has been, you know, there's been some quite famous, you know, really quite perverse writing later, which argues that you can do it just through, through trade alone, but which, you know, entirely underestimates uh, the importance, as I say, of, of, of aid in the early takeoff stages of African economies. There have been larger Asian economies where there has not been significant aid volume at the beginning, and that's been because there's been much greater opportunity for domestic capital formation. So, I, you know, I, I rue the fact this has gotten into this ideologically, this ideological choice between aid and trade. I mean, there's 
sensible middle way, and I, I think Britain's own Department of International Development, DFID, is itself making an interesting transition from a focus just on the kind of almost welfareist model of my time in government when we were very much focused on health and education delivery around the MDGs to seeing how you can support growth in, in, in African economies, and that's a healthy move. Thank you. Before I ask the others, I just want to make one sort of comment on the Libya. I mean, I agree very much with what you say, but I think one of the problems of the current discussion is that there's never enough discussion about how you actually implement, uh, whether it's responsibility to protect or a threat to international peace and security. And a no-fly zone seems to me a very odd way of defending um, yeah. Uh, a way of defending rebels in Benghazi. It, it is a sort of military intervention, Western military intervention, mm -hmm. first of all. It doesn't protect people on the ground. Mm -hmm. It may involve bombing mi military installations which kill civilians and so can be used politically, I think, mm -hmm. uh, by Gaddafi. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think you're absolutely right, we should defend, we should recognize the rebels as the legitimate government, and I think what the UN should do is to declare Benghazi a UN protected zone. Mm. You could then bring in troops through Benghazi. I mean, mm. it's not the same as a military intervention without consent, because it then has the consent of the, of the, of the people of Benghazi, and then yeah. you really defend people on the ground. But that's sort of so outside the way of thinking. Yeah, uh, yes. But that seems to me to be the, what ought to be done at the moment. And I'm really, really concerned um, that what actually, and, and that I have a few doubts about just arming the rebels because I think what's likely to happen is I don't believe Gaddafi can restore his dictatorship. No. But what he can do is to create the conditions for a, what I call a new war, for a persistent conflict, which will last a very long time. At the moment, the rebels are genuine Democrats, but once you create chaos, that's the moment that the extremists take advantage of it. And his idea that these are all Al-Qaeda could become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, and it could encourage counter-revolutionaries in Tunisia and Egypt and I just think it's an incredibly dangerous situation. And Bahrain too, by the way, that unless we seriously have an alternative narrative and unless we seriously think about how we're going to do it, I think it's a very, very dangerous moment. Anyway, yeah. I just wanted to no, add I'll a little comment. I'll certainly come back because you're the expert and I think those are very important points, but should we take a few more? Yeah, I, want, I promise that lady there. <laughs> Thank you. Global revolution will remain unfinished um, as long as we have conflicts unresolved. You refer to Asia conflicts, um, and all of us uh, look up to the UN, though it has strengths and weaknesses. We look up to the UN to do something about uh, the conflicts. Um, the strength of the UN depends on the strength of the individual governments that uh, um, are part members of the UN. 
the UK is a very important member of the UN. Uh, it has its weaknesses, but it, has, it is an important member of the UN, a member of the Security Council. Um, some of the um, human rights violating members like Sri Lanka, they undo the work of the UN by employing PR companies. Um, that is a very important negative step. It is under, undo, undoing the work of the UN. We are desperate to resolve conflicts. And it is, uh, I am very sad to note that one company, Bell Pottinger, which is employed by Sri Lanka, um, uh, is owned by a British parliamentarian. Um, Lord Bell, how can we have a British parliamentarian undoing the work of the UK that is working for the UN? Thank you. Gentleman over there, and then you after that. For all the good work that the UN obviously does in terms of development, uh, refugees, the peacekeeping forces, I mean, the nub seems to be the Security Council. I know it's almost a cliche to say, say that the Security Council needs reform as it reflects the post-1945 settlement that's way out of date. You've also got the clear abuse of the veto by the United States, I think, more than anybody else. Um, I mean, most recently it was the 14 to 1 vote, obviously, on Israeli settlements. Um, and we've seen again, even with, with the, UN, the USA ambassador to the UN, you know, showing very lukewarm support for any reaction on Libya. You know, no war room Obama is the, the story in the FT today. You know, Obama in his no war room. I mean, I, I never had high expectations of him, so I'm not particularly disappointed, but the friends of mine who did are hellishly disappointed. Just finally, the, the second point, on, apart from the veto, is, is really on Libya, which I just find the situation appalling. I, I like the idea of the, the UN protected zone. I think. You know, there are, surely there are methods of, of actually um, making the airstrips and the airports that Gaddafi is using unusable. I don't want to quote Reagan, but he did successfully attack his compound way back. Uh, surely there are ways along that very long road between Tripoli and Benghazi, which was the, the you know, hindered so many of our great generals, as you said, 60 years ago. Surely there's a way of actually slowing down the advance on Benghazi. I mean, the things that we can actually do from the air, or do we have to go through another Bosnia? You know, when are we going to learn the lesson? Because, I mean, I hate to think what will happen to civilians in Benghazi, you know, if he actually gets, gets there. Um, oh, no, I said this person here. Yeah. So I'm doing three at a time, so I'll, I hope we'll have time for another round. Emmanuel Yumiko, LSE Ideas. I will also have to get on the dump on America bandwagon here. Because one of the problems that seems to me occurs with the UN is where its headquarters is. It seems the United States does not care very much for the UN at all. It failed to ratify, among other things, off the top of my head, the treaties on landmines, the Kyoto Protocol, elimination of discrimination against women, rights of the child, UNCLOS, and so on and so forth. Insofar as the country where the UN is headquarters doesn't care so much for the UN, don't you think it's time we moved it somewhere else, like, say, Beijing, a country of the future that might actually care for the UN instead of a country of the past doesn't care very much for it? All right, should we take those three then? Yeah. So let, let, let me deal with the non-Libyan ones first and then uh, come back to that. I, I think, you know, on, on, the, um, on, on Sri Lanka, um, you know, Sri Lanka is a, 
you know, is a really difficult one because it's actually won some quite critical votes in the UN. Um, when I was a minister, um, it won a vote in the Human Rights Council uh, in the midst of the events against the Tamils. You know, right at the height of that violence, it managed to prevail in a human rights vote against a British-led resolution uh, condemning what was happening. And it was able to do it by making an appeal to a kind of, if you like, a kind of old spirit of third worldism, of solidarity against Western interference in the internal affairs. And, you know, it's continued to harass and uh, and, and fight the UN over this whole issue of, 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 of what happened there. So, you know, the, the circle of complicit is much wider than Bell Pottinger um, and um, it involves a lot of governments who should know better. I mean, for example, the Sri Lanka is at the moment slated to host the next meeting of the Commonwealth. Um, and and there's a tit for tat in this. I, I at, several years ago at the Commonwealth Summit in, in Uganda, failed to get to the Queen's dinner, which wasn't a huge loss, but uh, because I was fighting all night with the Sri Lankans who were refusing to let us suspend Pakistan, then under military rule, from the Commonwealth. Uh, and um, we finally prevailed, and it was really quite influential in getting the transition back to democracy uh, in, 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 in Pakistan. But my point is that, you know, the politics that goes on, particularly around human rights in the UN, is, is terrible. And actually, one of the observations I make in the book is that, to my mind, it may well be the case that leadership on human rights is always going to remain with groups like Human Rights Watch, or amnesty and not with the intergovernmental mechanisms because I just often lose confidence in their ability to judge human rights issues in a anything like an objective way. It's always trumped by, 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 by politics, I regret to say. Um, and I talk about some early examples from my time at the UN when I, I saw this up close as a young intern even. Um, the, 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 the issue of the headquarters of the UN, when, when I was a uh, Deputy Secretary General, in great secrecy, uh, a Canadian delegation from the city of Montreal came to see me to offer me a huge site, ten times the size of the UN headquarters in New York. Uh, and the promise of redeveloping it and building a residence and a mission for every UN country uh, on very favorable financial conditions and, you know, beautiful, pristine new offices and headquarters at the very time that we were having to start a massive redevelopment and asbestos removal project on, on the UN in New York. God, was I tempted. Uh, and it was particularly it was at the height of oil for food and the idea of all those nice Canadians and you know, <laughs> slipping out and having a coffee and croissant in Montreal versus you know the deli in New York it just was too good to be true and I I slipped along the corridor to Kofi Annan who you know reminded me well in fact formally told me to leave it to our successors but much more uh, to the point 
you know, reminded me that, of course, you know, as much as we had to sort of fight in a way our host country so much of the time, you know, there isn't anything really in the UN good that has happened without the US as well as bad. Uh, it was Eleanor Roosevelt who uh, led the charge uh, for the whole of the early UN human rights legislation. It was uh, President Roosevelt who secured uh, the charter. And the US has had this completely ambivalent role. It is at times the biggest spoiler, and at other times it is the biggest leader and inspiration in the organization. And often, all within uh, the same time of the same administration, and sometimes within the figure of the same ambassador who on some issues can be an inspirational uh, leader and delegate, and then in the next breath be articulating a vision of an America enraged at being tied down by the constraints of the United Nations. So I think on balance, this is a tiger that the UN has to go on riding. But what I would say uh, is that you know a fascinating thing is happening because at the moment if you look at the five permanent members of the Security Council, the two best and most active are France and the UK. And frankly they're like that because they know it's their, their, the last place that they are first league. Um, now if I'd said that in Paris I'd be immediately dra dragged off to the stocks by President Sarkozy, but you know, I, I think here we have a greater self-awareness, and we know that you know, punching above our weight with a veto, which we never use. Now we have not used the veto in a very long time, uh, as as Britain at the UN, um, you know, gives us a, a, an authority that we would otherwise lack. I believe there are other countries who, in a sense, are ready to participate in the UN in a way they have not till now because they see problems being brought to them and they are being demanded to be part of the solution and yet are not ready to play be global leaders on their own and I particularly am thinking of China and India uh, but also of Brazil and South Africa and you know there are I think those of you who are Chinese in the room could confirm or take exception to this but you know I never cease to be amazed between the way we look at China as now the second richest country in the world after the US because it's just overtaken Japan and how China looks at China as a country which still has a one-tenth of the per capita income of Japan and so with a massive unmet domestic agenda of development still to be completed and a reluctance to be drawn into a huge range of global responsibilities that distract them from that domestic challenge. And so I think the, an effective UN as a vehicle for China to, to multilaterally contribute to global problem solving rather than finding itself in a G2 with the US is exactly where China wants to go and India and others as well. So I think there's a real emerging political basis of the countries on the way down, uh, like the UK and France, to combine with the countries on the way up to create a much more stable stakeholder platform of committed UN countries than we've had for a long time. And I hope that group are going to start finding a cohesion and to recognize that mutual interest in, in, in making the UN work, even the UN in, in New York. And so back to, to the sort of Libya issue. I mean, I think 
you know, when the UN was founded, and, and this was a fact I only learned many years later as trying to kind of tidy up some of the institutional arrangements when we were trying to reform some things, there was a military liaison committee uh, which was intended as a, an advisory group to the Security Council which would, you know, plan these kinds of military operations before they were introduced to the Security Council and at that time the conception was that the Security Council members would be the principal contributors of troops for these operations. So there was a concept that Russian and American and British and the others would sit down and say this is what it would take to stabilize the situation in Libya and that the resolution would be written around that strategy. The committee never really met. Um, because of you know the almost immediate return to the Cold War, and now while good delegations in New York have military advisors, we've gotten to this point where the Security Council resolution is written by diplomats who seize hold of a tactic like a no-fly zone, and you know the whole negotiation gets reduced to no-fly zone in or out. Because I actually read Obama's position as a bit different to how you read it. I actually think this was American irritation at bloody Britain having gotten into its head that the be-all and end-all of a solution in Libya was a no-fly zone. And why had Britain gotten it into its head? Because the British Prime Minister was trying to make military policy at the dispatch box in the House of Commons <laughs> when he came under attack from the back benches. Oh, well, no-fly zone. You know, that sounds tough and good. And, you know, so we backed into a tactic which was too soon at that point and should never have been introduced into the argument by a country such as Britain. And then it becomes, for several weeks, the thing that the tug-of-war of the diplomats is about. So by the time they actually get close to a supporting it, as I expect they will in this resolution, it's the wrong tactic for the wrong moment and the wrong situation. And, you know, this is, of course, for someone like myself, a great frustration because, you know, having steered these resolutions through, and by the way, something that I don't think the new Secretary General does, I mean, we would get down there with the governments and actually kind of help them write these resolutions to try and avoid this, 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 this sort of outcome. You know, I, I made plenty of my own no-fly zone mistakes over the years I was doing it, and I watched my colleagues do the same things. The way it works, of course, you know, one just kind of learns about how to do it by the time one's been consigned to the armchair uh, and observes it from, from, and comments on it from the podium of the LSE. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, is guilty, therefore, of that sort of Monday morning quarterbacking of, oh, God. We'd have done it differently in my day. Um, we probably wouldn't, because ultimately this is structural. It's a Security Council, a gang, not equipped, staffed, tooled, organized to provide the right kind of linkage between legal doctrine, political response and narrative, and military tactics. And here, here, to your suggestion, by the way, Marianne, it's a very good one. If we could only, only yeah. had time to take it further. Now, yeah. we've only got 10 minutes left, so I'm going to be a bit arbitrary. I'm going to take you in the front, because I saw you a long time ago. And we ago. have a very fine international lawyer. And we have a very right? fine international but lawyer there. And I hope, excuse me, but I'll take you there. Sorry to everybody else. <laughs> Sorry, who is the first one? First one is here in the middle. 
We, I suppose. Could we get him to Sure. No, I'll okay, I'll let answers. you two, yeah. who are the two others, come in, but you've all got to be very quick, I'll please. Quick. And, and Mark will be quick too. I'm Mark Haggard. I'm an epidemiologist with collaborations in Eastern Europe. My question goes back to the Arab world, but not concerning our Arab country. Iran. Iran is not Al-Qaeda, but it shares some interest with Al-Qaeda. Um, what do you think uh, Iran is likely to do if the situation in the Arab world continues to be tumultuous? And is there anything that can be done to stop Iran making greater mischief out of it? Okay, then this one here. Um, evening, Mark. Thank you for that brilliant exposition. Um, can I tempt you to say very briefly a little bit more about environmental problems? You haven't said a great deal about that. Um, but as we know, there's a growing um, sense of a need for improved governance in that area, leading perhaps to quite a big meeting in Rio next year. Are you optimistic about that? Could you say something about the importance of that, please? Then you, just here. And uh, thank you for your analysis, Lord Brown Bay. It was very nice. Uh, I basically wanted to ask you is that why do you think in your uh, mind and through your experience that a lot of countries uh, don't, aren't, they don't try to change according to the times? Because as you know, that if one doesn't change, one dies eventually. I just want what it's, uh, some analysis on that, maybe. Okay, here. Hi, my name is Max. I'm studying global politics. And the punchline of my question is, would you be interested in another job? Um, <laughs> I, my interest, uh, picking up on your comments about the revolution being unfinished and also the importance of civil society, uh, for me the breakdown comes at the level of the United Nations associations and the Wafuna network. Um, I've been developing work under the title of the Influx Project to try and reconnect the UN and civil society and uh, I wonder if you'd be interested in coming together to scrutinise the work so far. <laughs> and then we had a final question at the back there. Hello there. Um, from what you've been saying, uh, it seems like the UN is slightly um, under-resourced. Uh, do you think the logical next step for the, um, for the UN is to um, develop some sort of um, tax of the global citizenship to some sort of... Um, to develop some sort of income for itself, basically, from the uh, people that um, it governs. Great. All right. Well, I agree with that. Um, you know, first, on, on Iran, I mean, to be honest, other than uh, we may find its fingerprints in some of what has happened in Bahrain, but there's no obvious sign of them. I mean, um, and you know, while Iran showed some early triumphalism about you know this is the Islamic Revolution, when it became quite clear that it was something very different, it was a kind of secular, middle-class, employment, consumer revolution, um, democratic revolution. Iran fell relatively silent. Now, as I say, there may there may be some exposure of Iranian hand in this sort of Shia-Sunni split in, in, in Bahrain. But I, I think that you know, Iran is quite consumed by its difficulties at home. I mean, one of the little noticed successes of UN action in the last six months is finally the sanctions are working. Um, you know, there is real pressure on the government in Iran coming from economic 
constraints and difficulties. And, um, you know, they, they, their trade situation has been hugely impaired. And it's not so much, to be honest, the formal UN sanctions, it's the American ability to kind of cut through the whole American uh, global banking system with, you know, threats to anybody who trades or deals with Iran. But it's, you know, it's working. This is a somewhat cowed, constrained Iran. And therefore, you know, while it could change, I don't see it being actually in the mood at the moment to kind of really contribute to the trouble. If anything, it's unsettled, destabilized, frightened. Could it be next in, 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 in what is going on? So even on the environmental issue, you're right. Um, I mean, I, I think that actually in, in, in what I write, the environmental issues are going to be an absolute critical driver of improved global governance because, you know, one of my big observations in the book is there are limits and they are principally resource limits. They're limits of water, they're limits of energy, they're limits of forest, they're limits of soil, uh, they're limits of agriculturally productive land. And, you know, at the moment, we've been through this whole climate change thing, which, you know, ultimately was about the most difficult thing to challenge an emerging global polity with. Because what you were saying was, there, the scientists tell us there's a problem down the road for our children or their children. Uh, and based on that disputed scientific evidence, we have to combine now to tighten our belts against a threat that is 20 years away. Now I'm caricaturing it. But, you know, in any political system, I mean, just look at the, the, the refinancing of the American, the American social security system. People are extraordinarily ungenerous towards the next generation. And at a global level, based on the disputed science, which I do not dispute, I'm an externite, I accept it entirely, but nevertheless, where it has been quite successfully rubbished, at least at the margins, by those who want to oppose it, there's not been the political will to do it. But I think that will not last, because these other resource limits are not 20 years from now. We are into the world of $100 a barrel energy. Uh, we are into, you know, massive pressure on water resources in, again, parts of Asia. We're seeing a wheat crop failure in, in China and other countries as well, with Russia banning wheat exports. You know, we are into an era of higher energy prices, higher food prices, and insufficient water, well, water to meet our uses. So even if we are, appear to have stumbled at the first hurdle of climate change, I would argue we've stumbled because politically it was the hardest to do. But that these other issues will force us to do certain things in the environmental and technology fields, but also in the political realm. And we will do them, because if we don't, we're going to have the real crisis of environmental things, which is free rider problems. We're going to have some countries doing things and others not. So I think $100 gas or petrol is going to really concentrate the mines, and we're going to see progress across a range of issues that have looked very, very hard um, to, to 
achieve. Why don't countries change? Well, they don't when they don't have responsive political systems. I mean, I was the publisher of the Arab Human Development Reports a decade ago, which you know laid out exactly what's happened now, not written by me, written by Arab authors. And you know, I got condemned in the Arab League for sponsoring these things, and yet applauded on the Arab street and applauded in Western capitals for the power of the analysis. But the fact is the regimes went on because for these regimes there was no peaceful exit. Uh, the best they could hope for was to die in the job. Uh, and you know when you get those kinds of political systems which are you know completely locked into continuity and stability versus evolution and change, they will go on to the last ditch. And you know that is what we have uh, seen, and it's why the Arab region has got so dramatically left behind other regions which have built greater evolutionary capacity for adjustment and change into their system. And you know, so finally, of course, I'll be happy to um, to 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 hear what you're up to. And I'm sorry that the UNAs sound as though they're a bit out of touch. Although I would only say this: I I did meet some kids last weekend who'd just come back from a UNA in Edinburgh which was for, I mean, a model UN, but I think UNA organized. And, you know, it is quite astonishing how generations of students, young, both at high school level and university level, you know, buy into all of this still, uh, even though their own parents always get so frustrated and disappointed in the behavior of the UN. The dream of a more orderly management of our global affairs, which took me off to see the world, you know, is as alive, I suspect, for you and, and others as it ever was for me. So, you know, that's, in a sense, the encouraging note to finish on. Thank you, Mary. Well, thank you. That was wonderful and very rich set of questions and yes. discussions. So thank you very, very much. Thank you.